This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, BAFTA-winning writer and actor Jamie Dimitri reveals how an admin mix-up paved the way for an unconventional career trajectory. Emma Garland uncovers the groups of women policing dating apps. And... Are you a steepinkler or a sitspinkler? Sam Wollaston extols the virtues of sitting down to pee. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, in the BAFTA winning Staff Let's Flats, Jamie Dimitriou unleashed a trail of comedy carnage. Here, he talks to Alex Mashakis about body contortions, dealing with feeling thick, and finding inspiration in the chaotic antics of his Cypriot family. Read by George Georgiou. The comedian, Jamie Dimitriou, was slumped in a chair, trying not to look. He was at a cast and crew screening of his new Netflix special, A Whole Lifetime with Jamie Dimitriou in which he takes viewers on an off-centre sketch musical journey through life stages, from womb to grave. The grave, in this case, is a hospital wheelie bin. Earlier that day, Dimitri had arrived late for lunch, a nervous wreck. He'd been delayed by several visits to the toilet. And though audience members at the screening laughed cheerily in the right moments, Dimitri couldn't bring himself to watch. You know when a horse bolts? He says, when we meet one mid-morning in an East London cafe. Apparently, it's blind and deaf for the entire race. I kind of felt like that. Like, I didn't hear or see anything. Dimitri is best known for writing and starring in Stath Let's Flats, the BAFTA-winning Channel 4 sitcom, in which he plays the titular character, a dim-witted, almost likeable lettings agent. Stath features several comic actors with whom Dimitriou often works, including his sister, Natasha, or Tash, who is also a successful comedian. While making the series, Dimitriou became incredibly reliant on the relief of the ensemble, he says, because then he gets a rest for my own face when I'm in the edit. The new special features several of the same actors, 
but here Demetrius stars prominently in every sketch. As a screen-addled teenager begrudgingly attempting sex, a best man getting it wrong, a pensioner witnessing the moment after his own death, and he seems apprehensive about the attention. At the screening, he worried, when is the lull going to kick in, and how painful is that going to be? When I asked why he'd been feeling this way, he says simply, it's 53 minutes of my head, and then tutting, like, this is hardcore, my head. As a performer, Dimitriou is willingly grotesque. I'm a believer in grotesque being the only way, he says. The uglier or dumber or more incoherent his characters, the better. But in person, Dimitriou is self-deprecating and self-effacing. When I tell him I enjoyed the special, he says, Thank you. You're the first person I've spoken to who isn't obliged to say that, before catching himself and adding, Or maybe you are. Dimitriou is 35. The Netflix special follows a decade spent writing and appearing in sketch shows and sitcoms, big and small, in the UK as well as the US, and lately, the occasional film role. Stath emerged from a series of Channel 4 comedy blaps at a time when Dimitriou was developing several characters. My six-year-old son, who's not watched Stath, knows him from Paddington 2. You might recognise him as Bus Rodent from Fleabag. It also follows an important period of self-reflection. Now he is no longer very young, he's been considering his future, how his life might resemble or differ to that of his children's, should he ever have any. His partner is Claire Cole, a chef and the daughter of Steve Coogan. My dad's in a bit of a bad way with dementia and stuff, he says, by way of explanation. And I kind of, I don't know, I guess witnessing the finished line of something makes you think about it all a lot more. Dimitriou has spoken of an invisible umbilical cord between my writing and my connection with my dad. I ask if we can discuss his father. Sure, he says, sipping coffee, then warning, there may be a limit before I start sobbing. I ask, how is he? I mean, it's difficult, he says. Dementia is such a downward trajectory that it's difficult to be like, it's like this, but at least there's... He pauses briefly to enact searching for a silver lining that doesn't exist. It's definitely worse than it was yesterday, he goes on, and it's way worse than it was a month ago, and it's infinitely worse than it was before he had it. He's very sweet. It's great hanging out with him. But Christmas was definitely spent meeting him. There were a lot of introductions. You had to introduce yourself to him, I ask. A few times a day, yes, he says, which is a bit of psychological heavy lifting. Dimitriou's father was born in a small village in Cyprus and migrated to England alone, aged 11. He arrived without shoes, was briefly homeless and later owned a North London cafe where his son sometimes joined him. Characters filled our lives, Dimitriou recalls. Going to work with him at 6am to give tea to a guy who wore trousers and braces and nothing else, that's surreal. Or telling someone, no, they can't have a shower in the toilet. Dimitriou grew up mostly comfortable. He describes his father as coming from a different planet and as an unintentional surrealist. His mother, who worked as a nanny among other things and is now retired, is from London. As a child, Dimitriou worried his parents would never fully understand him. We couldn't have had more different upbringings, he says. So you feel like they don't know who you are. But the dementia has put things in perspective. Now I think... 
Ah, I wish he didn't know who I was in that way again. And then I'd love to be on first-name terms with him, basically. Dimitriou thinks of his childhood as unconventional and chaotic. While making Stath, producers sometimes worried that certain scenes were too outlandish for audiences to consider true to life, and Dimitriou would inform them that they were drawn from his experiences as a boy. If those years were formative, he says, and now I'm doing what I'm doing, well, I can only consider them good. But they definitely weren't route one. He reels off a few examples. Once, he watched a driverless car roll along a North London high street. When it stopped, in the middle of a large crowd, he discovered his father in charge of the vehicle. The driver's seat had broken so that it lay flat. Dimitri's father didn't know how to fix it, so just carried on. On another occasion, while holidaying in Cyprus, Dimitriou's father drove the family car onto a beach where it sank. Eventually, a crane was hired to recover it. So many times I'd be walking down the street and I'd notice something mad happening, Dimitriou says, and my dad would be at the centre of it. Though Dimitriou's father regularly found himself in remarkable situations, he never considered them unusual. After the High Street incident, he announced, Ah, the chair's broken. Rather than what Dimitriou thinks would have been a more appropriate response, you won't believe the story I have. After their car was retrieved from the beach in Cyprus, the Dimitrius went to dinner with members of their extended family. He didn't bring it up, Dimitriou recalls. Me and Tash were like, we've got something here. Surely we should be sharing this. When the siblings eventually did tell their tale, Lo and behold, no one cared. We got questions like, what kind of crane? Dimitri imagined his characters as being the opposite of himself. While he is considered and alert to the world, his characters are filled with a blithe confusion. They don't mind that they're desperately getting things wrong, he says. They just plough on. Because he is six foot three inches, Dimitri has learned to bend his frame to better blend into his surroundings which he feels is opposite to the way his characters might act. He described Stath and several characters from his special as people who step out of their door and don't look over their shoulder at the trail of carnage behind them, which he indicates is not unlike how his father behaved. In one episode, Dimitri's character falls asleep while driving, remains unconscious in the middle of a road for four hours, and then goes about the rest of his day. When, later in the episode, he meets with colleagues, he doesn't mention the event, instead focusing on the fact his sister, Sophie, played by his real-life sister, is wearing a really nice jacket. When I say his Cyprus story reminds me of this episode, Dimitriou nods. He goes on, there's a fish-out-of-water quality to them. I wonder aloud about the ways in which his father is the same as he used to be. The essence of him is there, he says. One thing he always did, which definitely forced me into a love of language contortion, is he aspired, and was successful a lot of the time, to be weirdly poetic in the things he says. And now, with even less ability with the English language, bearing in mind he never went to school in England and barely went to school in Cyprus, he's left with this kind of insane word association to demonstrate any kind of thought or feeling. It's a roller coaster. Me and Tash are mesmerised by it. I ask, how's your mum? Dimitri's parents are separated, but live together, and they remain close. She's so good with him, he says, but
but she's just, you know, it's funny. Because of the mad stories about my dad, he's always in the spotlight. But my mum? My mum is just a vehicle for love. He sighs, then begins to cry gently. Sorry, he says. God, well, there you go. That was the moment. After a pause, he goes on. She's just incredibly selfless, and with zero complaint has just taken on the role of... He searches for the right word. Caregiver, I suggest. Yes, he says, but I don't like calling it caregiver. I think of her as a transcendent friend. While making A Lifetime with Jamie Dimitriou, its director, Andrew Gaynord, sometimes referred to it by a working title, Thick Town. Every character I play has a kind of glazed look in their eyes, says Dimitriou, which is at the heart of everything I like to do, performance-wise. It's a kind of absence. That's the thing I find funniest. Though in person, Dimitriou is bright and articulate, for a long time he has referred to himself as thick. Deep down, I think I'm operating on a lower level than most people, based on my education, shoulder chip, blah blah, he says. I'm like, I need to work doubly hard to maintain this, because I don't have the kind of mental infrastructure or diligence based on how I was growing up. Dimitriou struggled at school. He didn't get A-levels, and he failed at auditions to various drama schools, never understanding the texts, never getting a call back. Partway through his second year at Bristol University, where he studied drama, he discovered he had been offered a place due to a clerical error. I was de-rigging a stage with one of my tutors, and we had a heart-to-heart, he recalls. When Dimitriou mentioned he hadn't taken any A-levels, the tutor was stunned. He said, no, no, you can't get in without A-levels. After the tutor checked Dimitriou's paperwork, he said, Never tell anyone this. The fact that Dimitriou floundered academically and later discovered he was not meant to have been offered a place at university has cemented a genuine belief he isn't intelligent. During a telephone call after we met in person, he told me, Isn't it insane that I'm reluctant to say, I don't think I'm thick? When I say yes, I can almost hear him shrug. I think I've always had this thing, he tells me in the cafe. Like going to the Edinburgh Fringe. All the good comedy societies are from Oxford and Cambridge. So my friendship group, they all came from those groups. They're all insanely smart and talented. He worries when he's with friends he believes to be more intelligent or well-read than he is, that he'll be in some way found out. I'm always like, please don't bring up Chaucer. He adds, to be honest... I think my friendship group is bored of me thinking of myself that way. I'm hopefully shedding it. It definitely didn't hurt getting some kind of recognition for Stath. It's just the way I felt for the longest time. Throughout our conversation, Dimitri admits to not insignificant embarrassment at being given the opportunity to make television. I'm still draw on the floor that I'm doing what I'm doing for a living, he says at one point. That I'm still able to, that somehow I'm allowed to. I ask why he feels so lucky. I wanted to go to drama school really badly, he says, but I'd never been to a theatre. I had no knowledge of Shakespeare, never been in that world. I was just deeply unprepared for something that I really wanted, which is reflected in staff. It's about having this thing that you want really badly, but having absolutely no ladder in front of you. You're literally going, it would be great if that happened, and then just looking around and thinking, well, 
I'm going to keep hoping. You could be forgiven for thinking of Stath as a proxy for Dimitriou's father. Of Stath's physical presence, Dimitriou says, Every time he entered shot, I wanted it to be like someone had thrown a big bag of bones into the room. In everything he creates, Dimitriou is heavily reliant on slapstick. I learned from doing live shows that I could use physicality to bandage moments that weren't working very well, he says. Whenever a joke failed to land, Dimitriou could contort his body into some remarkable form, eliciting laughter. In the same way, his fascination with ignorance and brainlessness stems from his own life, so does his interest in buffoonery. I spent my life being shit at football, he says, being like shit at running, generally bad at computer games. Everything you'd associate with masculine prowess. If you were to say, we're off to do something really cool, I'd be like, whatever that is, I probably won't be very good at it. So learning over time that I'm so bad at stuff, that it is literally funny. He laughs. It's the weirdest calling card. People often say, God, if I didn't do this, I don't know what I'll do. Well, imagine what that's like for me. In what other job is it useful to be really clumsy? In one of the Netflix sketches, Dimitriou plays an office worker who repeatedly catches his bag on a door, causing him to stumble into his workplace in comical ways. When I ask if the special offers any specific commentary on the meaning of life, he says, If there is a message, it's kind of that it's all fine. That's the closest I came. That everyone's just getting on with it. Everyone's saying stuff. And it's fine. Dimitri has always been interested in the mundane things people say, and even more in the fact we deeply feel the need to say those things at all. At the end of the special, a group of actors breaks into song. Everyone is saying everything, one sings, and we all can't wait to hear what everyone has got to say. It's like when you're at uni and you're in a seminar, Dimitri says. People put their hands up, less because they have something to say, and more because they want to say something, you know? There's a drama game that people play. You stand as a group in a circle and you have to count to ten. Someone says one, someone else says two, but you don't know who's going to say it and you have to get to ten. I was always struck by how many people would say two. He laughs. It's the intention of so many people to be the one who's saying something. To have that quick reminder that they're here, they're relevant, that they matter. That was I'm Heavily Reliant on Slapstick, Jamie Dimitri on Imposter Syndrome and His Surreal Childhood by Alex Mashakis, read by George Georgiou. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, ghosting, gaslighting, and cheating can fill part of the course in today's dating landscape. But now, groups of women have started joining up to create an early warning system against the worst offenders. Writer Emma Garland finds out more. Read by Colleen Prendergast. When Ali learned that her partner of four years had been cheating on her with at least nine other women, using dating apps and telling mutual acquaintances that they were in an open relationship, the 28-year-old felt her sense of reality implode. They were also living together, and around the same time she found antiviral medication for herpes at home. It turned out he'd had it for a couple of years. It's a common infection, so for me, that's not the issue. It was the deceit. He took no responsibility for preventing or mitigating it. Upset and wondering where to go from there, Ali's friend told her about a Facebook group called Are We Dating the Same Guy? set up in March 2022 for New York women to verify whether their prospective partners were seeing other people after the West Elm Caleb scandal in which a 25-year-old furniture designer was busted on TikTok for dating multiple women and then ghosting them. It's now ballooning in the UK. The groups, essentially digital whisper networks and largely heterosexual, have sprung up in cities and provincial regions for women to trade information about potentially toxic and dangerous men. They're growing rapidly in response to the pressures of modern dating. According to Ofcom's Online Nation report for 2022, one in ten adults in the UK use an online dating service, most of those aged 25 to 34, which is the demographic most likely to deal with ghosting and breadcrumbing, sending out flirtatious but non-committal signals to lure a partner, on top of wider issues such as cheating, gaslighting and worse. One of Ali's friends put her onto their local London group after she joined it herself, motivated by the levels of dishonesty she was observing among her peers. She was sick and tired of hearing that friends were dating someone who was also dating 10 other people and not being honest about it, Ali says. There are so many tools to hide what you're doing on social media, which affects trust, how much to give and it being abused. There are also more targeted forms of dishonesty, like fraud or catfishing, to consider. UK Finance reported that 38% of people who had dated someone they met online were asked for money, while Ofcom's online experiences research found that 11% of catfishing experiences were encountered most recently on an online dating service. Overall, the current dating landscape simply feels riskier, when the internet makes information both readily available and easy to obscure. I definitely believe that dating has become more dangerous, especially in the last couple of years, says Nadia, not her real name, who came across Are We Dating the Same Guy when scrolling through TikTok. Noticing there wasn't a group for her own city, she decided to set one up and now acts as admin alongside a few others. 
People can disguise themselves on dating apps by the way they act or by pretending to be a completely different person. The groups are private and members have to complete a screening questionnaire prior to approval to help filter out bot accounts. Still, numbers are skyrocketing. Created shortly after the NYC group, the London page jumped from about 1,400 members at the start of January this year to more than 18,000 members by the end of the month. The content, too, has expanded to include everything from harrowing stories of long-term, systematic abuse to a screenshot of a dating profile, along with a plea for any gossip on that person. The posting guidelines are strict. Users should be anonymous. The details of the men in question should be vague, no surnames, job titles or social media links, and some of the group's descriptions contain a warning that posting sensitive information about things like criminal records or STIs could be libelous. Working within those rules, Ali posted something vague about her situation. Essentially, I wanted to find out how much of an idiot I'd been, so to speak, and whether this person was prolific and endangering other women or not. My main concern at that point was the safety of other women. There were a few back and forths with other commenters, but nothing Ali was able to verify. When her partner later gave her the names of all the people he'd slept with, she recognised some of them from the comments, but her activity in the group stopped there. She already had the confirmation she was looking for. When your reality blows up in your face, it's very isolating, she says. You don't know whether you're over or underreacting. I think the group served as a reminder to trust my instincts. The fact that this sort of thing is prolific doesn't mean you're crazy. It means the other person is shitty. Unsurprisingly, since it's where West Elm Caleb went viral, are we dating the same guy is a big topic on TikTok. Searching the term will bring up everything from videos of British women warning of karma and comeuppance set to a dancehall track to a US stand-up joking about posing as a woman in his local group to get an honest review of himself. More anonymous corners of the internet, such as Reddit, focus on the ethical questions, such as does sharing people's dating profiles, private messages and photos without consent count as doxing? And how would we feel? if the genders were reversed. As it stands, all of the groups serve women dating men. To gender flip the issue would obfuscate the reality of who's most at risk, but there's no question that groups of men posting details about women would be far more controversial. Indeed, Glamour reported in October 2022 that when a male-centric New York group called Are We Dating the Same Girl emerged using the same community guidelines it was promptly condemned by the original group. There is now no trace of it on Facebook. How does instant access to this kind of information impact our well-being and approach to intimacy in the long term? I know loads of women who have joined these groups and are permanently affected by the distrust, Ali says. It's made them, and me, a lot colder going into interactions with new people. I'm sceptical of everything. It can go too far, and you need to remind yourself that you shouldn't have to do this with people. 
One thing the are-we-dating-the-same-guy phenomenon clearly demonstrates is the sense of disappointment and dehumanisation that can come with dating today. I think infidelity is rife because dating apps promote a discardable view of people and a grass-is-always-greener mentality, Ali says. Against that backdrop, are-we-dating-the-same-guy groups can offer a sense of camaraderie in a confusing and often lonely landscape. There are just as many posts thanking other women for their support and trying to organise Galentine's meetups as there are horror stories and red flag emojis. I see the groups as more of a chat platform, Ali says. Even though it wasn't able to prevent the situation she found herself in, the group provided a small sense of comfort at a time when she felt betrayed and silly. For Nadia, the group has actually made her outlook on dating more positive. Knowing there's a community of women who are so supportive of each other makes me feel safer, especially on the dating scene, she says. One person's experience with someone doesn't define them, but knowing any information before meeting a stranger is a good safety precaution. That was Dating Uncovered. How Women Are Unmasking the Cheats and Ghosters Online by Emma Garland Read by Colleen Prendergast And finally, it could be good for your health and help protect the family toothbrushes. More and more men, or indeed anyone with a penis, are now taking the weight of their feet in the bathroom and choosing to sit to pee. And Sam Wollaston is proud to say he's one of them. Read by Jonathan Keeble In German, there's a word for one. Of course there is. In German, there's a word for everything. But this is an especially excellent word. Zitzpinkler. You can probably guess what it means, even if you don't speak German. A Zitzpinkler is a man who sits to pee. We have German friends, Flora, Till, their two boys. Flora confirms that the males in the house are encouraged to sit at home, as is common throughout the country. Some German bathrooms have amusing signs reminding men to sit. There's even a device called a WC Geist, toilet ghost, that lives under the seat, and when the seat is lifted, orders you to sit down. You can get a WC Geist with the voice of Angela Merkel. Germany is a brilliant country. Wait, though. Because Flora says Zitzpinkler is used in a negative way to imply unmasculine behaviour. Something like wuss in English. In 2015, a court in Dusseldorf ruled in favour of a man's right to urinate while standing when his landlord sought financial compensation for urine damage to the marble bathroom floor. Stand up for your rights. Literally. Not all German men are happy to sit. Not all British ones, either. There is no reliable data. Come on, you gov, get on it. A straw poll of my male friends, mostly in their fifties, reveals the majority, about 70%, to be standers. Their reasons? They've always stood. Men stand, women sit. Why would they? No, of course they don't pee on the floor. We'll come back to that. In short, they're lying. I may need to change my friends. My editor, Chris, is half my age. This article stems from a conversation he had with his friends in the pub. Then he asked Twitter, 
and got about 400 responses, with just over half saying they are sitters. Chris has better followers than I have friends, though he is a stander. Hmm, I may need to change my editor. There is a poll from 2020 showing that 70% of men in Japan sit. Five years previously, the figure was 51%. It seems the world, Japan at least, is changing. To clarify, we are talking about inside the home. Out and about, where there are urinals and queues, it's a whole different world and a whole different article. I should probably also say that though I've been talking about men, it applies to anyone with a penis. Time to get personal. I am, I confess, a zitzpinkler. No, not confess. I am proud to zitzpinkle. It wasn't a sudden epiphany, a urethra moment, if you like, but things change as you age. Maybe your aim isn't what it once was. Flow rates decrease, bladders take longer to empty, you need more time, sitting is more comfortable, and you can check Twitter while you're at it. Remember what happened once when you did that standing? For some men, it can also be healthier. In 2014, researchers from the Department of Urology at Leiden University Medical Centre investigated how body position during urination affects voiding time, maximum flow rate and post-void residual volume. They concluded that sitting has a more favourable urodynamic profile, allowing the bladder to empty faster and more completely. For men with lower urinary tract symptoms, LUTs, for example, caused by an enlarged prostate, the sitting voiding position is preferable to the standing. We don't have LUTs, say my unreconstructed friends. Our prostates are perfect. Well, I think mine is okay too. Are we sure, though? We should get them checked. There are other reasons to sit. Going back to that poor Dusseldorf landlord. Actually, no need. It's hard to feel sorry for a Dusseldorf landlord with a marble floor, and I can just look at my own bathroom floor. I have two sons who have been reluctant to adopt the Zitzpinkler approach, and the floor, not marble admittedly, but fake wood laminate, is often disgusting. A wash. They piss all over it. Boys will be boys. We're grown men, say my friends. We may be getting on a bit, but our aim is still true. We're Robin Hood, snipers of the bathroom, the jackal. Well, first of all, I don't believe you. And second of all, even if you hit the bullseye every time, that's not good enough. Once again, we turn to science, this time to an American professor of mechanical engineering, Tad Truscott. A while back, Using a urination simulator and high-speed cameras, he and a colleague did an investigation into splashback caused by urination, which he presented at the 66th Annual Meeting of the American Physical Society's Division of Fluid Dynamics in 2013. Truscott now lives in Saudi Arabia and works at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, but I catch up with him by phone in a Japanese ski resort, where, he admits he has been investigating the fluid dynamics of a few sakes after a tough day on the slopes. Still, he manages to explain what happens when urine leaves the penile urethra. 
A stream comes out, but after between three and six inches, it starts to break up into droplets, and that's where most of the problem comes from. The droplets start to impinge on each other. Then you get what we call satellite droplets, and they splash off at very large angles. And this is what causes it to splash onto your toothbrush. Yep, he said toothbrush. And maybe not just your toothbrush. It will depend on how big your bathroom is. If your toothbrush is three or four metres away, you're probably fine. If it's just one or two metres, that's not good. That's just from the falling stream. There's also splashback from the wee hitting the surface of the water. Water tends to have a large splash when droplets hit it from that height. That means a lot of splash can come out of the toilet. I was actually telling a friend tonight that when you pee into a toilet like that, you tend to pee on your toothbrush. Interesting topic for Apriski chit-chat. But this splash is ickier still, and possibly dangerous. Pee in general is very sterile. It's not really a big deal if it lands on your toothbrush and you brush your teeth then. But droplets are quite capable of harbouring bacteria. And in the toilet, this is a problem if you've just used the restroom for something else. There can be faeces in there. Urea is a wonderful harbinger of E. coli growth. So later in the day, it might not be safe to use your toothbrush. Stop saying toothbrush! Anyway, surely that's enough to convert any remaining sceptics. For any splashback deniers or cavemen, I've got great role models too. Larry David, for starters. It's more comfortable when you get up in the middle of the night. You don't have to turn the light on or wake up, and you get to read, he says, in episode four of season four of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Lionel Messi, probably the greatest footballer of all time, admitted to sitting to pee on a Uruguayan TV show called Por la Camiseta for the T-shirt. Messi by name, not so in the bathroom. Still not macho enough for you? Well, guess who he was talking to? Also a confirmed Zitzpinkler. There is no Spanish word, we'll have to stick to German. Only Luis Suarez, not only a brilliant football player, but also a cannibal. Speaking of cannibals and cavemen, I'm wondering what our ancestors and nearest relatives did and do. Ben Garrod, a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of East Anglia and a primate expert, tells me. Gorillas and chimps just pee where they are. They might be walking through the forest and have a bit of a pee. They might be sitting in a tree eating figs and they'll just pee beneath them. And woe betide anyone beneath. I've been on the receiving end of that. We're the only primate that is bipedal. So we're in a bit of a brave new world when it comes to peeing. Great apes don't seem to mark territory. We are not olfactory based like dogs or cats which scent mark. That's a sort of urban myth that men pee standing up so they can pee higher, and it's all a bit of an evolutionary pissing contest, says Garrod. Sounds nice, sounds plausible, but there's no evidence for it whatsoever. It's thought that one of the reasons for humans becoming upright was to see further across the savannah. I wonder if standing to pee could be useful in spotting predators, and if squatting might make us more vulnerable. I guess if I stand up while I pee, I've got more of a chance of spotting a saber-toothed cat running towards me, or someone from a different community who might wish me harm, Garrett concedes. Again, sounds nice, 
but no evidence. It might be a nice addendum to my evolutionary journey, but it hasn't driven my evolution as a species. From an evolutionary point of view, then, it doesn't really matter how we pee. Garrod has worked with many tribes and communities around the world. Uh, most of us, I don't usually make a conscious effort to watch other people pee, but uh, working in forests with other blokes, you often see people having a quick wee. Usually it's standing up. As far as I know, there aren't any massive cultural differences. He's talking about in the forest, away from rules and etiquette and porcelain. That's the baseline. Of course, I stand up in the forest, too. And if there's a cliff, I'll piss over that while pummeling my chest. What does Prof. Garrod do at home in Norwich, though? I am a stander, he says, almost apologetically. Though I am also a runner. Occasionally, with very tired legs, I will indulge in a sit. Too bad. I was going to ask him to be my friend, to replace some of the recently dumped. Back to Tad Truscott. No toothbrush talk, promise. Surely he sits. I do, unless it's a particularly gross bathroom, then I'm not going to sit on the toilet. He has two boys and two girls. The whole house sits down to pee. He even has advice on how men should do it. You can sort of aim for the side. If you don't hear much, it's probably a stream. If it's a little noisier, it's probably droplets, and that's when things get worse. But remember, by sitting, you're protecting the whole space with your bottom. Happy days. Though doesn't that mean droplets on your bum? It's good to bathe every day, he adds helpfully. Thanks, Tad. We can be friends. He is also currently skiing in Japan, remember. They have these wonderful toilets with all the sprays and things for your rear end. I think men probably sit here because it's comfortable. Right now it's cold. You come in and the seat's heated. OK, I'm going to sit down. Sounds lovely. And I'm thinking it may be the way to solve my own bathroom horror show. Carrot, not stick. A lovely heated seat on a cold day. That's got to be a better way than being shouted at by the ghost of Angela Merkel. That was The Splashback Scandal. Should All Men Sit Down to Urinate? By Sam Wollaston. Read by Jonathan Keeble. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by George Georgiou, Colleen Prendergast and Jonathan Keeble and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.